Psalm 42, you'll notice the title to the chief musician, Maskell, for the sons of Korah. That title really doesn't identify an author to us for the psalm, but I think the case may be made, and Spurgeon always seems to be of the opinion that where the author isn't designated, David is usually a pretty close, uh, uh, a, a good guess. So, Psalm 42, verse 1, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. And do you see now the connection uh, between that with Philippians 3? Paul's longing for more of Christ, the psalmist's longing now for God. Verse 2, My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And can I pause there in the reading just long enough to have you marvel at that kind of a statement? This psalmist, if we take it to be David, he must have a pretty good grasp of the gospel and forgiveness of sins and imputation of Christ's righteousness that he would actually be anxious to come and appear before the God before whom all must give account. The natural tendency would be to have a dread of such a day. Here is an instance where a man is actually anxious for that day. And again, we can cross-reference this to Philippians chapter 3, where Paul's hope and desire is that he may be found uh, not having his own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith, the righteousness of Christ, in other words. Only by having that righteousness imputed to you could you be equipped to be anxious to come and appear before God. Verse 3, My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites, from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, and my prayer unto the God of my life. I will say unto God my rock, Why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones mine enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, 
for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. There is something of a refrain, you could call it, in this psalm that is found in two places, in verse 5 and in verse 11, where the psalmist asks the same question. Look at it. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Verse 11, very similar, nearly identical. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. In another psalm, much later in the Psalter, the psalmist says in Psalm 145 and verse 2, Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Every day, the psalmist says, his resolution was to bless and praise the name of the Lord every day forever. You and I both know, and I'm pretty sure the psalmist also knew this, that some days are easier to bless and praise the Lord than other days. When your soul is soaring to the tops of the mountains in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you've enjoyed that kind of fellowship with Christ that fills and thrills your soul, then it's easy to praise the Lord, and it's easy to think that you'll maintain your praise every day forever. The joy of the Lord becomes your strength and you enjoy a strong sense of assurance of sins forgiven and the Lord's favor and the Lord's presence. And it's not hard to praise him when you're in that kind of condition spiritually. And when time at last yields to eternity and mortality is swallowed up in immortality, then you will bless and praise the Lord every day forever. And you'll do so with all your heart. I love that answer to the catechism question that asks about the benefits that believers receive at the resurrection. I probably cite this more than any other answer to a catechism question. At the resurrection, believers will be raised up in glory, acknowledged before the judgment seat of Christ, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. Oh, the very thought of it should make you long for glory. But on other occasions, and especially is this true in the present state of this world, it's not so easy to praise. In the psalm we've just read, Psalm 42, the psalmist has not found it all that easy. And the reason's not hard to detect. Twice we find him confessing that his soul is cast down and disquieted. Verse 5, why art thou cast down on my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? 
He asked the question again in verse 11. Another version translates it this way. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? I'm very thankful for such expressions in the Psalms. They teach us to be honest before God. And they teach us that it's not really such an unusual thing to find yourself in the kind of condition that's being exhibited here by the psalmist. The means of grace can seem to be so ineffective, and the things that are seen with the carnal eye can forge the reality that presses you sore to the point that you wonder at times if your religion is a mere cunningly devised fable. What's a believer to do in such circumstances? Is he to praise the Lord when his praise would be anything but heartfelt? Well, I think the psalmist in Psalm 42 provides a good answer for us regarding such a dilemma. Notice, if you will, and I won't take the time to read the psalm again, but you can check this out for yourself. Notice when you read through the psalm that nowhere in the psalm does the psalmist actually praise the Lord. Now we find the word praise in the psalm, but we don't actually find the psalmist engaged in praise. What we do see in verse 5 and again in verse 11 is his anticipation of praise. Look at those verses again and notice that little word yet. I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Verse 5, I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Verse 11. Some other versions capture the meaning, maybe a little more exact, by translating the statements this way. I shall again praise him. The meaning then is simply that while the psalmist may not find it in his heart to praise him now, because his soul is cast down and disquieted, he nevertheless recognizes that he's not always going to be in the valley of humiliation he will yet or again praise the Lord. These verses bring our attention then to a topic that every Christian who finds his soul cast down and disquieted needs to consider. It's a topic that can be assigned the heading of anticipated praise. It ties in very closely with the idea of Hope. I've defined hope in the past as that aspect of faith that looks ahead. And so with the idea of hope in view, we can analyze verses 5 and 11 and see in each of them a word of exhortation that the psalmist gives to himself. Hope in God, he says to himself. And there's also a word of resolution that provides the basis for the exhortation. Hope in God, and here's his resolution, for I shall yet praise him. 
What I'd like to do this morning is take this twice recurring statement and analyze it in terms of the condition that leads to the statement, the basis for the exhortation, and the heeding of the exhortation to hope in God. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him. Let's think for a moment on the condition leading to the exhortation. The exhortation to hope in God. I've touched on this somewhat already, but let me go a little further in examining the psalmist's condition. He is, to use the terms of the verses, cast down and disquieted. Besides the two references that make up the refrain to the psalm, we find the psalmist saying the same thing uh, near the end. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. That's in verse 6. These are terms of trouble and despair. The word disquieted is translated in another version in turmoil. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? But these two terms, cast down and turmoil, are not the only terms the psalmist utilizes to describe his condition. In the first two verses of the psalm, he expresses a longing for God that he equates to a panting or a thirsting. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So you see then, in addition to being cast down and disquieted or in turmoil, the psalmist is describing here a condition of internal longing or thirsting, panting as the heart does after the water brook. Verse 3 intensifies and prolongs the psalmist's condition when he confesses, My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? His condition is such that it emboldens the scoffers and the mockers to taunt him. Where is thy God, they say derisively. Do we not feel the, round, the, the world around us asking the same thing? Where is thy God? If he was real, why would he allow the sins that are prevalent in the nation today? If he favors you, then why doesn't he hear your prayers and grant your deepest longings, as well as move against the sins that you complain about? Where is he? And in addition to the psalmist's pain, there comes a contrast that's expressed in verse 4. The psalmist is able to remember better days. Notice what he says in that verse. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude, I went with them uh, to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept holy day. 
It's probably ver based on this verse that David is thought by some to be the author of the psalm. The reference could be to his time in exile when he had to flee from Saul or when he had to flee from his son Absalom, when Absalom moved against him to overthrow him. In those seasons, he was cut off from being able to attend the corporate worship of God in the city of Jerusalem. He had no access to the tabernacle. Of course, the temple hadn't been built yet, but there was at least something of a model of the tabernacle that had been set up by David in Jerusalem. We could draw something of an application to our day, to seasons of sickness that members of our church have to endure, it seems like, on so many occasions. Every time folks walk in and I say, is everybody here? And they say, yes. And I say, praise the Lord. What a rare blessing. <laughs> because we know, don't we, uh, what it is to be sick and infirmed and how for a time that can keep us out of the house of God. And in such situations, there are those that are, in a sense, cut off from the corporate worship of God. I hope the longing of the souls of such that have been in such a condition are the same as the psalmists. They are longing to return to the house of God again. But even among those that have not been cut off from being present in the worship services, there can be a sense in which they too feel as if they're cut off because the means of grace just don't seem to be effectual to their hearts. They may be present bodily, but spiritually speaking, it's as if they're in exile even when they're seated in church. Verse 5 gives us the refrain to the first section of the psalm, and then the psalmist takes up his complaint again to begin the second section of the psalm. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Verse 6. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and billows are gone over me. Verse 7. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Verse 9. It's easy to see then a very vivid and discouraging picture of the spiritual condition of the psalmist. He's troubled. He's in despair. He's longing for God, thirsting for God, anxious to know God as he's known him in the past. His longing is intense and prolonged and is all the more aggravated by a world around him that is not the least bit sympathetic. But contributes to his despair by ascribing no more to the covenant-keeping Jehovah than they do to any other pagan deity. Where is your God? And again, let me point out what I said in my introduction. I love these kind of psalms. I love what I can identify with and relate to. I love that I'm taught to be honest with God. 
I love that such a condition of spiritual desolation is given to us in Scripture for those times when we find ourselves in the same condition. And we don't have to hide it. We don't have to put a mask over our face, so to speak, to pretend that such a thing isn't the case. We find ourselves in the same condition, longing and thirsting for God, feeling far from Him as we painfully remember better times. Oh, don't even suggest to me this morning that this is a condition you can't relate to as a Christian. That would almost be tantamount to wondering if you even are a Christian. There are times when every believer is cast down and disquieted and anxious about many things. Like Martha in Luke's gospel, it can be said of you, it can be said of me. Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Luke ten forty one. Who among us could deny in such days as these that it's easy to become troubled about so many things? All you need to do is consider the world that's around you. The word that is hostile to Christ and opposed to the things that are pleasing to Christ. Add to that the burden you have for loved ones that you want to see come to Christ, but it doesn't seem like they ever will. And then add to that the burden you have for your own walk with the Lord. You want to be closer to Him, and you want to serve Him and live for Him. But your sanctification seems to be painstakingly slow. It doesn't seem that you're making any progress in your pursuit of holiness, and it might even seem that you're going backward instead of forward. And there are other deep longings that every Christian knows that defy expressions that you could even put in words. It is in such times as what I've just described that you need to follow the example of the psalmist And you've heard me make reference to this in the past. You need to preach to yourself. In his book entitled Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones draws from this very psalm to tell the believer to preach to himself. Preach to yourself, Lloyd-Jones says, instead of listening to yourself. That's a rather interesting thing to contemplate, isn't it? Preach to yourself instead of listen to yourself. Don't allow those magnified foreboding thoughts to dominate your soul. Take the matter in hand and preach to yourself. Remind yourself of Christ. Indeed, preach Christ to yourself. Remember who he is. Remember what he's accomplished by his atoning death. Remember that you're joined to him. You're in union with him. He's your husband as well as your prophet, priest, and king. It's a time for you to inwardly ask yourself, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Do you notice that he's asking himself that question? He's preaching to himself. And then it's time to thump the pulpit of your heart as you loudly from within proclaim to yourself, hope thou in God. 
And with that exhortation, follow up with the resolution and the anticipation that you will yet praise him for the help of his countenance. You may not be praising him now, but you will be. Set it down as a resolution of your faith. And that leads to my next point, okay? We've seen the condition that leads to the words of our text, a very bleak condition. Very happy to leave that point behind, okay? But we have to face the truth and reality of it. But consider with me next the basis for the exhortation. The basis for the exhortation. Hope thou in God. There's the exhortation. The psalmist says to himself, For I shall yet praise him. Let me point out here that the psalmist is not merely exemplifying some kind of psychological technique that says, preach to yourself, psych yourself into blessing, work yourself up into thinking all is well. If you simply keep saying to yourself, I shall yet praise him, maybe your troubles will go away and the sun will begin to shine again. It's not what the psalmist is doing. There is a basis for his hope when he preaches to himself, commands himself to hope in God. There's a reason he can anticipate praising God again. And I should note here that this basis is easier for us to grasp since we're on the other side of Calvary's cross looking back on the truth of it. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 8. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me in my prayer unto the God of my life. The psalmist is anticipating here renewed experience of the loving kindness of God, the covenant faithfulness of God. It's only a word away. All that needs to happen is for the Lord to give the word or the command. Just as the Lord commanded the light to shine out of darkness, so can the Lord command again that the light of his countenance dispel the gloomy clouds that may be in your heart. You might say there's a foreshadowing in these words of verse 8 to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 where Paul writes, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as I just said, it's easier for us to affirm the truth of God's loving kindness by being able to look back on the cross of Christ I think we can take a verse like verse 8, and by viewing it through the lens of the cross of Christ, we cannot help but affirm that the Lord will command his loving kindness because the Lord has commanded already his loving kindness. Isn't that what the cross of Christ demonstrates to us? that God has commanded his loving kindness to be displayed. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, says Christ in John 15, 13. 
Look again at the words of verse 7 in our psalm. I see in these words not just a description of the psalmist's condition, but I see in them an allusion to the cross of Christ. Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy waterspouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Listen to Spurgeon's comment on that statement. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Spurgeon notes, David thought that every trouble in the world had met in him, but he exaggerated, for all the breaking waves of Jehovah has passed over none but the Lord Jesus. The same expression pertaining to waves and billows is used in other places in Scripture that I believe point to the cross. For example, Jonah, from the belly of the whale, which had descended to the bottoms of the mountains and the sea, he says, Jonah 2 and verse 3, For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Now we know, don't we, that Jonah's experience is pointed to by Christ himself as a sign of what Christ would experience. And we know that Christ was cast into the deep, a deep that had to be shrouded in darkness that no man could penetrate. And we know that the billows and waves of God's judgment went over Christ and were poured out upon Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to another psalm in the Old Testament. A psalm that I think could be categorized as perhaps one of the most despairing psalms in all the Psalter. I remember hearing a preacher once say with regard to the psalms that whenever you find the psalmist beginning his psalm in despair, you inevitably find him ending in triumph. Can't say that about Psalm 88. Look with me, if you would, at that psalm. Let me read it. It's not a long one. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry, for my soul is full of trouble, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength, free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more. And they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves, Selah. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up, I cannot come forth. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon thee. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee, Selah? Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in destruction? Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Verse 
But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. Lord, why castest thou off my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and mine acquaintance into darkness. You see what I mean about a psalm that contains no hint of triumph or joy or victory. And yet, could I suggest to you that that psalm is filled with consolation when you read it through the lens of Calvary's cross. Verses 6 and 7, Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy ways. Can it not be said of Christ? Verses 16 and 17. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Can you not detect allusions to the cross of Christ in these statements? God's wrath laid hard upon Christ. Christ was afflicted with all the waves of God's justice. God's fierce wrath has gone over Christ and such terrors as God's wrath cut off Christ from his Father. This is why the psalmist can begin this despairing psalm by addressing God as the God of his salvation. Verse 1. You begin to see then that There is a basis for the psalmist's hope when he exhorts himself to hope in God. And there is a basis for you to say to yourself, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the help of my countenance. You may not have come to church this morning on top of the world. You may be feeling that the world is on top of you with all the pressing matters that are weighing heavily upon your soul. Do those oppressive circumstances nullify the love of God? Do you really believe that in the end it will be darkness that prevails over the light of God's love? You know that it won't. You know that Christ has conquered death and the forces of darkness and has nailed to his cross everything that would come between you and your God. And so you have a sure basis for saying, I will yet praise him. You will yet praise him because your hope in him is a sure hope. I have one more point just to mention briefly. We've seen the condition that leads to the exhortation to hope in God. We've seen that the basis for the exhortation is sure. Let me say a word briefly and quickly about heeding the exhortation. Heeding the exhortation. Hope thou in God, the psalmist preaches to himself and to us. I will yet praise him. I may not be praising him now, but I know that I will. 
Therefore, I must hope in him. It's a good exhortation, but does the psalmist give us any instruction as to how to heed the exhortation? He does. Look at the words of verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites from the hill Mizar. It's possible that the places mentioned in this verse are places perhaps where David fled during his time of exile. The important thing, though, is to remember. Remember God. Remember Christ. This is how you hope in God. You remember Him. This is, of course, what we do around the Lord's table every time we partake of communion, but communion times do not have to be the only times that we remember Christ. Indeed, we must remember Him much more often than our monthly communion services. Remember Him. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan, etc. Remember him. In particular, remember that Christ left heaven's glory and condescended to become a man. Remember that he's your covenant head. Remember that he's your prophet, priest, and king. Remember that he gave his life for you. Remember that no greater display of love could be demonstrated than what he's demonstrated at Calvary's cross. Remember that he's redeemed you, and because of that you belong to him. Remember that he's borne God's wrath for you. Remember that he's atoned for your sins. Remember that he's gone to prepare a place for you, and will therefore return for you. Remember that the love he's displayed, as I said, is unlike any other kind of love. And remember that his promises are yea and amen. Remember that by his grace you've called upon his name. If you'll remember him, you'll have no trouble heeding the exhortation to hope in him. And even though the clouds of gloom and despair may be gathered around you now, you will nevertheless praise him who is the help and health of your countenance. Oh, may the Lord help us then to hope in him by remembering him and to either praise him now or anticipate that the time is coming soon when you will yet praise him again. Let's close then in prayer, shall we? O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, bring this service to a close. We thank thee that our hope in God is a sure hope. Lord, we cannot deny that we do go through times when our soul is cast down and disquieted within us. We thank thee for such expressions in thy word as what we find in this psalm. 
to show us that we're not really in an unusual place when we're in that kind of condition. But, O oh Lord, may we reflect on the glorious truth that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that all these things that do come upon us, O oh Lord, are designed by Thee for Thy glory and for our good. Help us, therefore, Lord, to see them that way. And, O oh Lord, if we find it hard to praise Thee with hearts that are filled with joy and thanksgiving, may we nevertheless anticipate that we will yet praise Thee again. And we pray that Thou wilt be strong in our memories to realize that our hope is indeed a sure hope. So, Lord, minister Thy Word this morning to any that may be in the condition in which we find the psalmist in this psalm. And Lord, for those of us who perhaps are not in this condition now, may we be equipped for that time when we surely will find ourselves in this condition. For we know, Lord, that as long as we make our pilgrimage through this world, there will be much to bring us to despair. Help us, therefore, to keep our minds and hearts stayed on Thee, knowing as we do that Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on Thee. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.